Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right. Well, when you're ready, let's get underway. Go for it. Hi, this is Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is the pseudonymous Twitter account, the man behind the pseudonymous Twitter account, Bluegrass Capital. We're going to talk to him about some of the valuation methods that he uses and how his own process has evolved, where valuation for him is relative to, say, what Buffett has done, what other folks have done. Uh, We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Bluegrass. How are you? I'm well, and thank you for having me. I was telling you offline, um, I think we have kind of some different approaches to our investment styles, but I've read several of your books and I'm just really uh, flattered by some of the prior guests you have and for to be, you know, sort of in that company. I'll try to make this uh, interesting for your listeners. Well, that's very kind. Like I, I heard your podcast with Ryan Reeves and he had this little quote of yours right at the start, which uh, blew my mind a little bit. And you said at the start, if something like, and I'm, I'm going to misquote you here slightly, but if I can find a company that invests a dollar in acquiring a customer and they can get back three to five dollars in gross profits, it doesn't matter to me if the EBIT margin, EBITDA margin is negative or positive. And I was uh, honestly, I was, I was kind of blown away by that. And I've thought about it a lot since. And I, I know I think I understand what, what you're driving at, but can you just describe uh, your how you're how you're valuing these companies when you when you first start out absolutely um yeah ryan is a we'll give a shout out to ryan he's a learning machine i'm really glad to have met him um so what we were talking about there and the quote you referenced is we're talking about uh, unit economics of a transaction um so to go to back up and kind of start broader you know what's an example of unit economics um This used to be a lot simpler for investors to figure out when you had businesses that employed a lot of physical capital, tangible capital. Uh, So if Walmart is going to build a new store um, and say, let's say Walmart has 50 stores now or 10 stores or whatever, and they're about to build one new store. Well, you can look at their existing business and you can say, okay, this income statement is a reflection of their 10 existing stores. Um, They just told us they're going to spend CapEx of whatever, $10 million to build this store. And the returns they expect to get are X, like, you know, the store will pay back itself in two or three years. You know, there's going to be a drag um, of cash going out the door while they build the store. Um, they're going to have to hire employees and, and, and buy inventory before that new store opens. So, like, if that store wasn't open, their existing 10 stores would look better on the consolidated income statement. But that new store is going to be a drag for a little while. Um, so that's unit economics. That's saying, okay, maybe the income statement's going to look bad next year or not as good as it would have because this new store 
is kind of is kind of um, making the other ten stores not look as profitable as they are, and that's kind of easy to to understand. When you kind of transition that capital model um, to today's framework, or I should say, what's more common today, where these a lot of currently successful and growing businesses don't need tangible assets. You know, they're to invest to reinvest in their business. They're not building a Dollar General store or a Costco store or a Walmart store. They're acquiring a customer. They're acquiring a digital customer. And so you just have to think about differently the unique economics of their business. You know, they're not going and building a Walmart store. They're spending money advertising on Google to acquire the customer. But it's the same exact idea. It's just of, you know, how much money do you spend today? And then what kind of cash flow are you going to get um, on that outflow in, you know, a year, three years, five years, 10 years? Okay, so I, I've got your, you very kindly sent through your, uh, a little bit about your investment process uh, beforehand. So the first step in your investment process is to start with a customer value proposition. So can you walk us through that, how you make that assessment? Yeah, absolutely. It's just on the micro level, like before we even get to unit economics, just think, you know, does this product need to exist? Do customers want this? I mean, does anybody want to watch MTV? Like, no. I mean, so it's like, uh, you know, I think you can just stop your analysis there for various reasons if that's what you decide. But you, you think of other things. It's like, you know, do people want food delivery? Well, yeah, they really do. People like really like having stuff delivered to their house via Amazon or Domino's Pizza or whatever. So it's just, you know, it, it's the idea of the value proposition is this, is the customer want this so they better off for it. Um, and if they are and they like it, and it's something they can, you know, buy frequently, repetitively, uh, then you start, you know, going kind of further down the list of, you know, does this transaction actually make money for the company? You know, for some businesses that are good businesses, it, it does. They have positive unit economics. It's, for some, it's still debatable. You know, like, does Uber have positive unit economics? Um, does Netflix have positive unit economics? Um, maybe, maybe not. And then, okay, so you... That, that, that makes complete sense. So you're trying to work out, does this, does this product or service uh, help the customer in some way? Does it cut some cost out of what they're doing? Does it provide a service that they're prepared to pay for? Then you're looking at, and this is probably most applicable to software as a service type businesses. Is that fair? Is this for any business? No, no, no. For any business. I mean, like pest control. You know, I don't want, you know, roaches and spiders walking around my house. And, you know, my wife, you know, if she saw one, she'd be really upset with me. So like they have, it's a small relative cost, whatever, $20, $30 a month or something for the pest people to come by. You know, it's, it's non-discretionary basically. You know, they raise the prices three or 4% every year and we don't even think about it. I mean, so that's a value proposition. I don't want cockroaches in my house. You have the specialty chemicals if you're Rollins or Service Master to do that and you know where to spray and I don't. And I don't want to crawl under the house and I don't want to get onto the roof and you know put screens over my gutters to protect squirrels from getting in my attic <laughs> i mean i'm sorry i'm just going on too much of a tangent no yeah, i love it it applies to any business i mean it's like should this business exist do okay. people want it i mean do people need this service or product and a lot of companies you can just look at and it's like no like or there's a hundred competitors and you know or you can do it yourself there's no reason to pay somebody else to do it so it's just fundamentally before you even get to the does this business make money you know, at the unit economics level, just think to yourself, like, do I need this? Do I want this? Is this valuable to anybody? If, if this business just fell off the face of the earth, would anybody care? Right. 
That makes that makes sense. So then you you then you next look at the unit economics. So this is so for a for older style companies, let's say old, older style businesses, this was a question mm-hmm. of building out the store or whatever the case may be, and then what sort of return can we expect on that? And then if we're building out X number of stores, we're going to see at least up front there's going to be some investment. There's going to be negative cash flow, uh, depending on how they depreciate it. it could be negative income mm-hmm. impact and then you're saying that at some stage they they start overwhelming or the the growth and the the, the payback starts overwhelming the cost to uh, install it and it becomes profitable and that's the that's the curve that you're trying to build that so that's the unit economics is that a fair description of the unit economics absolutely yeah i was probably long-winded on the opener uh, but my favorite kind of example as far as a physical tangible model is dollar tree if you look at Dollar Tree, which is a dollar store operator, uh, competitor of Dollar General, if you look at Dollar Tree's, uh, like I think it was 1995 uh, IPO prospectus, I think on the cover page, it just basically identifies, it, they, they outline their unit economics on the front page. And it's basically like, it costs us $300,000 to open up a new store. And in the first year, you know, we generate like, no, 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 it was $150,000. And in the first year, we generate like $170,000 of EBIT for that open store. So like the payback on that store is like six months or eight months or something. And so the thought there is like, if me and you, if we just had like a couple, you know, $10 million or something, and we could just spend $300,000 or $200,000 to open Dollar Tree stores, like you and I wouldn't care what like the profit and loss of the store was on Gap. Like we just knew that if we open one, like it's gonna pay us back in like six months and then the store will still be there and people will still be going to it and it'll still be profitable. And we'll just take our any profit comes from that store and open the next store. So, so you're looking for these. These are these are companies that can grow very, very rapidly, and you're trying to find them at a fairly early stage in their uh, growth curve, where the profitability is sort of somewhat hidden by the fact that they're still growing and reinvesting at a high rate. Is that is that fair? Um, that's a yes. I, I'm not intentionally trying to look for companies with those characteristics. But I would the, the response I would give you is I do see a lot of hidden value or a lot of misunderstanding in the current market for businesses with those characteristics. Um, I think it was you know widely misunderstood seven or eight ten years ago. Uh, I think it's a lot more common and kind of understandable now, especially as a lot of um, businesses remain uh, venture capital uh, funded businesses remain private longer. And uh, as we've had like the proliferation of Twitter and Medium and other blog formats, you know, uh, venture capitalists share a lot more information about these companies that are still private. So I think they're edu- help, helping educate investors. Yeah, I, I think you raised kind of two interesting points there. One is I'd, I'd like to get an idea what your ideal target looks like. So let's start there and then I'll, I'll, I'll go to the next question after that. Sure. Um, it's always fun to think about. Nobody asked me that question. My ideal target. Um, it's kind of building on some of the things we just said. Uh, but you, you, you mentioned something a minute ago about, did, am I looking for businesses that are kind of early on their growth curve? Um, I'm really not. I mean, I, I'm not a- afraid of them uh, to invest in. I really like, despite some of the things we've already talked about, I really like asset-intensive businesses. I like, like, <laughs> air- I know it's confusing. I like airports. I like shopping malls. I like data centers. Um, uh, um, but what I guess the point I was going to make was, um, 
what I'm really most interested in is the reinvestment runway. Um, so I'll use this example of we can build one dollar or a Dollar Tree store. It takes us money up front, but then we quickly get our capital back and it's growing and it's, it's spitting off this cash and we can take that cash and reinvest it in the next store. So the reinvestment story, you know, what is the company producing cash flow? But if they are, what are they reinvesting it in? Um, that's really the main thing that I'm interested in, focused on when I'm underwriting a business. Um, so it's basically, you know, trying to understand just what the opportunity is. Like, uh, you know, is management clear about what they're reinvesting in? Do they educate us on the opportunities that make sense? Is there a big growth runway for them to reinvest? Just kind of qualitatively understanding it. And then, you know, going in the spreadsheet and saying, okay, they're reinvesting a, do a dollar in what? You know, are they earning 3% on that? Or are they earning like 50% on that next dollar they earn or invest, I should say? So I think that reinvestment and the concept of understanding it and looking for it uh, is is uh, at the center of kind of my investment process. That's the core. Okay. So I, I the second question that kind of fell out of what you said, and I agree with the, your, like, I think that something there has been a change over the last 10 years and it has moved away from, I would say that 10 years ago, Buffett style investors were probably looking for, the company has to have a sustainable competitive advantage, high return on invested capital, so on. That's basically still what you're saying. But in some ways, this is an extension beyond what he was doing because this is, I think a lot more of the value comes from the growth. I'd say like almost all of the value in this analysis comes from the growth and you really just to go back to the first the, the quote that you had on ryan reeves podcast you that you're you're really not caring about the profitability of the company at at this point in time when you're looking at it you're imagining what it's going to look like much further down the road which means that all of the the value is sort of in the growth i do agree that um a larger percentage of current valuations are really future growth related as opposed to just kind of the, the base business. Um, and to tie that in to something you, you told me offline, which I thought was a great quote about, um, you know, you're looking to basically uh, pay a, a cheap or a fair price for a business uh, that's doesn't factor in any growth. So and essentially you're looking at a business and you're saying, if I can pay a valuation that assumes no growth, even though I'm going to get growth and get growth for free, then that's attractive to you. Um, for me in reinvestment, um, you know, reinvestment or understanding the reinvestment opportunities is essentially just understanding, uh, management's capital allocation strategy and abilities. Uh, so for me, I'm happy to pay a fair price or even a full price for a company. If I think I'm getting management's capital allocation skills for free, uh, and hence potential reinvestment opportunities for free. If somebody looks at a, you know, a really high quality business like Brown Foreman, the maker of Jack Daniels or just any spirits company, Diageo. And they say, this is, you know, it's trading at a 30%, you know, PE multiple premium than the S and P 500. It's like 25 times earnings or 30 times earnings. And it only grows, you know, three, 5% a year or something. Um, I mean, that's a full price. I mean, and, uh, but, but yeah, um, my point was going to be, you know, growth is kind of baked in there. But if you can pay something that's, you know, 20 times multiple, and that basically is value a core business that grows at like three or 4% and its earnings grow at like seven or 8%. Um, but management's track record has produced like double that. 
you know, via acquisition or reinvestment or whatever management's track record is actually growing the business like 15% earnings a year. Um, you're, you're effectively getting their capital allocation skills for free. If, if you're paying, you know, a kind of a, a market ish 20 times earnings multiple. Gotcha. So just to, just to change text slightly, you, one of the, in the, in the, uh, the document you sent through to me, you're talking about, and this is, this is, uh, I, this I think of this as sort of a more modern way of undertaking evaluation, but I, I, this is something that I learnt uh, like 20 years ago in the, uh, or maybe more than that, in the in the run up to the dot com boom. There was this, um, and this was more in a venture capital context, and these were valuations that were undertaken uh, typically in private companies in in a in a venture capital style where you had to figure out. What does it cost to acquire the customer? What is the customer's lifetime value? What's the total addressable market? I think about that as a sort of venture capital style investment. Is this is this sort of listed venture capital? Is it is it value in a venture capital uh, context? I think I understand your question, um, and I'll I'll give you kind of a a wild ass comment, and maybe we can bridge it together. You know, I think I think this has always existed. I mean, people understand that if you're Coca-Cola and you're spending a lot of money to like advertise during the Super Bowl, like there's, you know, it's not just an expense that has no benefit. I mean, you're doing that to try to build your brand value. You're trying to acquire customers and keep your existing customers. I mean, so like if you're the head of marketing, I mean, you, your job depends on you quantifying, you know, the return on investment for your marketing spend. Um, so I think that's, I mean, I think it's the same concept. Uh, I think it's just a lot of companies, uh, a lot of companies that are late stage venture or kind of uh, early uh, public companies that are just growing so fast, they're just spending so much more aggressively. Instead of you know spending a couple of percentage points, you know two or three percent, four or five or ten percent of your revenue to kind of grow customers slowly. I mean, they're saying you know the lifetime value of this customer for Coke it might be 50 years, but for our enterprise software customer, the lifetime value may be only seven years. So I mean, it's just kind of a compressed. Time frame, so they're not going to spend, you know, five percent of their revenue on sales. Um, they're going to spend thirty percent of their revenue on sales. Um, that's just kind of the way the model looks. Can you give an example of that if you apply it to say something like Grubhub? Yeah. Um, um, so I mean, uh, their their acquisition cost for a customer is like twenty five to fifty dollars somewhere in there, and they spend it mostly. Acquiring a customer uh, uh, via Google or offline advertisements like Subway, uh, Billboard type stuff. Um, and for that customer, um, uh, for 20%-ish of their customer base, uh, that customer is ordering weekly, so four or five times a month. And so if you run the unit economics on that, they're paying 25 or 50 bucks. The lifetime value of that customer, if they churn, they, they last about a year and a half to two years, it's like 150 bucks. Uh, is the lifetime value. Um, so if you just think about it that way, 150 bucks comes in the door over two years versus up front, you put out, you know, 50 bucks uh, to advertise and acquire the customer. And that's a three to one ratio. I mean, so that's a simple example. Um, and that's not exact, by the way, that's just kind of pulling through comments from management and trying to triangulate around some some data. But that's yeah. what LTV versus CAC would look like for Grubhub. So, so that was kind of my that was that was going to be my next question. How how are you actually making that assessment? You, that, that's that's not you know that's obviously that's not something that's in the financial statements. That's that's something that you have to triangulate from 
commentary from management? Yes. I mean, just uh, parsing through transcripts, you know, and reading whenever, you know, management team has kind of a, an industry interview with like a, a magazine or CNBC or something. You just keep, you know, notes and every now and then they'll kind of give you a gem that kind of pushes you uh, in the right direction to understand that stuff. I mean, some of the companies like Zoom, for example, I mean, in their S1, they will actually show uh, these unit economics, uh, but it's just because they're so egregiously good. Um, they really can't hide them and they don't have enough competition to really be worried about it. But you're right. These are usually things that are not easily to just figure out and they're not, there's, these are not metrics that are in a 10K. How do you then go from the unit economics that you have uh, building that into a, a, a financial model of valuation for the business? Um, and a really short answer, you know, it's just layering them all in. I mean, so if you have, you know, 10 Walmart stores and you're going to build an, a new one, then you would just kind of have a model that says, okay, here is our, you know, business model or financial model for 11 Walmart stores. You know, what, what is the revenue going to be for store? What's the expense base going to be for store? You know, that kind of thing. And just add it all together. Um, it's the same thing, just a lot more or infinitely more complex uh, with thinking about LTV versus CAC. That you can just say, okay, the, the lifetime value is this versus the acquisition cost is this. Um, you're going to have X amount of customers come on, you know, per year. You're going to have X amount of ch customer churn per year. Then you just put those things in a spreadsheet and, and you kind of play around with, you know, a variable range of what the output is. Um, it's just, it's just a summary instead of summarizing, you know, a bunch of Walmart stores or Dollar Tree stores, you're just summarizing or summer consolidating, you know, millions of customer transactions over whatever the lifetime you're projecting. When you're looking at something like Grubhub, and I think that that's a good example where, you know, that it seems to me without, I haven't looked at Grubhub closely, but when I, as a consumer of these services that there are, you know, there's, there's a lot of competition out there. How do you get comfortable with which is the place to place the bet? Absolutely. Um, and the real short answer for me on food delivery is I don't, I mean, I, I'm not comfortable. Um, I look at the competitive set and what I know about it, the dynamics in the marketplace and how they're competing and who's spending capital and who's funding the capital. And I don't know the answer. I mean, so, you know, you can, you can see a, a good customer value proposition and then positive unit economics, which Grub has, but still not make an investment. Um, you know, I don't see necessarily, I could argue either way, basically. Uh, but as far as, you know, in food delivery right now, so that's the example we're talking about, you know, is there a moat that you can point to? You know, I would say, no, there's not. Um, and, you know, if you said to me, you know, what do I think the competitive dynamics are going to look like in the food delivery industry five years from now? I would say I have no effing idea. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, when, if you, you know, those are simple things, but they're the right questions to ask. And, you know, I think it's important to be familiar, uh, with a wide variety of companies. Um, and even including, you know, companies you may never even invest in because you're going to learn things about other businesses you own or you may own in the future that you wouldn't have otherwise figured out. Yeah, I agree. I, I, there was a comment. There was a great comment on Twitter, something about, uh, how do you define your circle of competence? And I liked your answer to it, which was, uh, how do you define your circle of competence? I'm glad you brought that one up. Uh, cause that was kind of a flippant response. Um, I, I do think as investors, we need to constantly be pushing ourselves to expand our circle. 
Um, but as I just tried to demonstrate to you, I mean, we, you also have to be realistic about what your circle is uh, and say, you know, it, I think it's totally fine. I think it's actually one of the most important things to just be constantly saying, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. You know, there's whatever, 15,000 public companies in the world. You know, there's no reason why we have to, you know, it's, 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 it's okay to just say, I don't understand how this works and move on to the next one. Uh, but, I, but I think it's not okay, you know, for there to be large scale trends in industries that end up driving the majority of growth for, you know, the whole stock market. Uh, so the example would be technology over the past 20 years. I don't think you can just sit on your, you know, your hands and ignore that kind of thing. Um, right. And uh, this, this leads me to the next comment. You, 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 you say investors are overly focused on the gap income statement. Um, this year's reported net income is operating on a legacy toolkit that's not evolved with the current opportunity set in markets. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, just, I think we were talking about this earlier. Um, I mean, if you think about how, how uh, the, the current regulators or how basically how our financial statements, gap financial statements, income statement, balance sheet, cash flow, you know, who are the, who made those, uh, what do you want to call it? Who, who developed the framework for what those look like and what they track, you know, and when did, when did that happen? I mean, this is going back to like the 1920s, 30s and 40s, uh, you know, when the primary businesses were railroads. I mean, so that, that's just, you know, if you think about like if you built a financial uh, model today or like a financial statements, I mean, they would not look the same way they do now. We're operating on just a legacy kind of system. And there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, they're not flawed necessarily. They're just, I mean, you have to understand how to interpret them. And, and unfortunately, you know, I think analysts get trained uh, kind of from the accountant's point of view. And I'm a, I'm a uh, what do you call it, a retired CPA. So I guess I can talk about this from not being in a mean way. But I mean, you know, if you're, if you're taught from an accountant's point of view, uh, I mean, you're just looking, you're, you're not thinking about the business the same way like an operator would. You know, an operator uh, uses uh, the financial statements in a totally different way, and they pull things totally, and they pull different information out of them than you know a first-year MBA student would. What's the difference? What 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 what's the difference between an operator and a and an accountant? Uh, it goes back to this concept of unit economics. I mean, just bridging that down. I mean, somebody can look at this, and you know, if you looked at Walmart's cash flow statement in like the '90s or the '80s, I mean, they're just churning through cash. It's like negative you know, free cash flow. Um, so people, I mean, you, their, their reported gap net income is going to look really good, but their cash flow is, is, you know, it's going out the window. Um, but we know what the unit economics of a store are. They're really good. It makes sense for them to build new stores. There's huge demand all over the U S for like, you know, cheap retail products, uh, high quality retail products, water selection or whatever. So they need to be reinvesting in new store growth, but on the free cash flow statement, it would look like a train wreck. Now, the opposite is true for a lot of SaaS companies. You know, they get paid up front on a lot of their software contracts, so they have deferred revenue. And so they have ginormous amounts of free cash flow. Operating cash flow is just crazy. I mean, in a good way, going up, up, up. But if you look at, you know, reported uh, EBIT in, uh, margin or net income, I mean, they may, be, they may show like a loss. So it's, you know, both things are relevant and they're important to understand, but I mean, I, that's the example I think of is just kind of, if you're not thinking about the holistic picture of the business, what the unit economics of the business are, why they're taking capital today and doing something with it, investing it, and what's going to come back from that investment three or four years from now, 
you just may be kind of missing the forest for the trees. So that leads to, so management's important in this process. How are they taking the free cash flow that's being thrown off and reinvesting it in the business? So how, how do you uh, assess management? Yeah, I think, I think that question and just this idea is continues to be and hopefully will be a sustaining kind of source of opportunity for investors in public markets. Because really what you're doing is you're doing behavioral analysis on other humans and just trying to interpret, you know, the communications they give you. And it's not something I mean, you can't when you talk about a management's capital allocation skill and how they reinvest capital. That's not something an algorithm or a computer, you know, can put in an ETF. At least I haven't seen one yet. Um, you really you have to just kind of listen to the words they give you. Um, so one. I've got a list of uh, shortcuts here I mentioned, I wrote down, by the way, and this was one of them um, for thinking about some of these topics. Um, if, if a management team writes a shareholder letter, if they take the time it, just once a year to write a three or five page shareholder letter, that already puts them in like the top 5% of management teams. Um, so that's like a quick and dirty cheat or kind of filter to look at businesses and say, you know, if, if, they, if this management team can't even take the time of like an hour on a Sunday in you know January to write to me their shareholder, you know about the business. It's like, come on. Um, but in their shareholder letter, usually that's where management will kind of spend a lot of time, not just talking about the state of the business, but talking about you know what are the challenges that they have and what are the opportunities they see, and inside those opportunities, you know how are they going to reinvest your capital. Um, so as far as trying to figure that out, you have to just read management's words and listen to management's words and, you know, on the transcript. So they talk about it and the best management teams are very clear and they articulate it very clearly. They say our capital allocation priorities are A, B, C, and D. Um, and if you look at also some of the best of the best companies, these management teams say the same thing. I mean, it's like painfully repetitive, uh, sometimes, but they say the same thing on every conference call. They say the same thing in every shareholder letter for 10 years, they say, we're going to reinvest in the business. We're going to, you know, spend this money to do this. And then after that, you know, we might do acquisitions. And then after that, we, you know, if our shares are cheap, we're going to repurchase shares. And then after that, you know, we're going to give you a dividend as long as it doesn't take care away, take away from our organic growth. Um, that seems yeah. like a pretty good priority list. Would you, is that, is that not a good list? No, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of the basic toolkit that they all, I mean, the good ones say. I mean, there's no, those are kind of the only options also, or, you know, you can also pay down debt or do something with your balance sheet, but that's basically it. Um, and it's in, in the, in the, as far as value creation standpoint, think about it from a shareholder, you know, the different buckets can move around, you know, the best, the lowest risk capital allocation source for a shareholder is organic growth. You want the core business to be growing. You want them to be reinvest in the business. So if you're Netflix, and you, and you think as a shareholder that they have a competitive advantage in content, creating content or Disney's a better example. You know, I want Bob Iger to be spending money to reinvest in like Marvel to make more Marvel or to make more star Wars movies. Cause we know people will pay for them or to build a new edition, like a star Wars edition to Disneyland. Um, that's organic growth. Uh, but some, some models it's, it's a lot higher hurdle rate and it's more difficult to accomplish and it comes with more risk, but some business, uh, management teams are very acquisitive and it's, you know, they, they create a, a lot of value via acquisition and that's their primary reallocation of capital. Uh, example there would be like constellation software. They just buy these 
two or five million dollar vertical market software companies. And these things hardly grow at all, depending on which side of the fence you're on. You could say they actually may have kind of slightly negative organic growth. Um, but that's been very successful for them. And there's this huge universe of like, I don't know how many, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of these small vertical market software companies. So they take their cash flow and they smartly reinvest it that way. And and then again, I mean, if you're like an Altria, a cigarette manufacturer, you know, you've been paying increasing dividends for 50 years and your core business is like slowly dying, uh, but you're just returning 80% of the free cash flow to customers. I mean, to shareholders, I should say. And that's been a very, you know, value creating business. They're not reinvesting in their business because cigarettes are, you know, they're, it's a bad industry. It's a declining industry. Um, so there, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong about how management allocates capital, but there is proven ways that works. And that waterfall I went through of reinvest in the business first, you know, then, you know, small acquisitions that kind of build out your existing product base, attack the same customers, you know, and then maybe repurchase shares if they're cheap and then pay a slowly, you know, growing dividend over time. That's kind of the, that's kind of the main template you see the best management teams use. Do you look at how management's incentivized? Is that part of the assessment? Do you look at the proxy statement? Do you look at, um, and how do you account for share-based compensation and that stock-based compensation? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I mentioned the kind of the best cheat sheet to think about capital allocation usually is, you know, uh, the, the shareholder letter. Um, if they, if they, if they even want to write a shareholder letter, usually they're going to talk about capital allocation. Um, so that's a good kind of signal. Um, the question you're kind of basically asking is, and I, absolutely, I think the proxy is as much or more valuable sometimes than the 10K. If you want to understand, so it's one thing for management, I'll say it this way, it's one thing for management to say, here's how we're going to reinvest your capital. It's another thing to believe them and uh, you know, have enough uh, belief that they're going to do that to make an investment based on those beliefs. And the best way to have confidence in that you know, one is just their track record of they done what they said, but number two is understanding their incentives. And, you know, if they say, uh, we're going to reinvest, you know, uh, cap capital, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. My dog just woke up, um, but she's gone now. One year old, great Dane. Um, if management says in the shareholder letter, you know, we're going to reinvest your capital to build new stores. Um, and then you look in the proxy statement and it says, um, uh, 30% of management's bonus next year is going to come from if they built as many stores as they said they're going to build. Um, you know, that's, that's a good incentive and that's a good kind of like marriage of they're saying they're going to do this. I'm betting on them building new stores because new stores have a really high return of capital associated with them. They're being incentivized to do that. So it'd be stupid. I mean, it'd be crazy. You know, there's no reason they wouldn't try to do that. So I guess that's the way I would think about that. But absolutely. I mean, it's probably a monger quote, uh, but yeah, incentives, understanding incentives um, is still probably an underutilized framework. And, and how do you think about uh, stock-based compensation or, or how, how, how does that factor into your, into your model? Um, on a qualitative basis, like a behavioral basis, it's the same way as incentives. Like I want, I want the employees, I want all employees to be owners of the business. I mean, my favorite businesses are owner operators where the founder still runs the business and the founding family owns 20 or 30% of the, of the business, because you know, they're going to make long-term decisions. You know, they're thinking about their capital that's employed in the business thoughtfully, and they're not going to do something 
you know, that's just going to set capital on fire. So they're very aligned with you. It's the same concept with employees. Like I really want like an Amazon employee who's 25 years old getting a lot of stock based comp because I want them to like, you know, be spending all their time thinking, wow, if I work really hard over the next 10 years, I'm going to be a millionaire because my Amazon stock is going to double or whatever. Um, so I, I'm all for it uh, conceptually. Um, I'm on the quantitative side. I mean, no shareholder wants to see excessive dilution. Um, I don't want to see, you know, excessive uh, unearned kind of stock-based compensation. Um, just like I don't want to see a bad acquisition paid for in equity, you know, that dilutes the existing share uh, share base. Um, so that's the way I think about it that way. I don't really get too hung up about it. I, I think maybe part of your question was going towards thinking about, you know, there's a raging ongoing debate about uh, how you think about stock-based compensation with inside of free cash flow. Right. You know, is it an ad back? Is it something you just ignore kind of thing? And I think the answer there is just, you know, it's a materiality issue. You know, businesses I look at just don't tend to have super amounts of stock-based compensation that it's even material that it's impacting free cash flow. Uh, If it is, I think you just want to understand it um, and say, you know, and and at different points in a company's lifestyle, it's, it's more natural than others for early business. You know, you need to give a lot of equity to early employees to track them to your business because you really don't have a business. I mean, you just have an employee group with some, you know, uh, white paper you wrote on your business and, you know, $10 million in the bank from some venture capitalists. Um, so I, I guess the summary would be it's not something I'm really concerned about as far as dilution. I just look at it and say, you know, are you diluting my company? If it, As long as it's not material. I mean, if they're diluting the stock by like, you know less than 1% a year. I mean, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Um, how do you find the companies that you like to invest in? What's the, what's the search process? I think this goes back to the concept of maybe shortcuts or finding things. Um, uh, cheat sheet. The best way for me is uh, talking to somebody like you, for example, like you pre-screen somebody and you're like, yeah, this person is competent. And, you know, we have, we figure out what our mutual interests are. And we like we decided, hey, we both really like like Walmart for some reason or Costco, and you kind of have a frame of reference, and you just talk to each other over time, and you, you share notes about the retail industry or whatever. Uh, just having your own network of other analysts, and when that analyst that you kind of already pre-screened is being really competent and good, just kind of comes back to you, and they say, hey, you know, you need to look at X Y Z business. Um, that that's by far the highest value way for me to spend time working on a company or looking at one. Um, outside of that, um, I keep a long queue of kind of 10 K's to read. Um, and it's just basically, it's ever evolving list. You know, I've got some 10 K's on there that have probably been on the list for like six months. You know, and I keep like putting names in front of them and never get to them. And I, I mean, I, I may never read some of them cause I just don't really have interest in them, but, um, it's the, it's companies that I already own are on the top of the list and it's their main competitors or potential new competitors. Um, and it's, um, yeah, I'll stop there. That's kind of the general summary. That, that, that's, that's a, I think that's a common way for discretionary investors to, to do that. A, a lot of guys who I've spoken to who are more discretionary tend to do a lot of speaking to other people. I sometimes think, I just wonder if, is there a risk to, uh, getting, you know, everybody seems to hold the same, uh, portfolios. I know that, uh, 
Twitter account Barbarian Capital has a joke that he calls generic value partners and then <laughs> you go through the list of, and it's always, yeah. you know, it's the same five or six stocks that everybody holds. Um, no, actually, you built on something um, to kind of poke fun at myself, but also, no, I forgot about this. So the the kind of the, the probably the best screening tools I use other than having a, another smart person come to me and say, hey, look at this business um, is if you looked at my portfolio, um, and I'm getting back to the generic value partners or generic growth partners, which I'm certainly guilty of. I'm definitely not afraid to, you know, own commonly owned names. Um, there's a lot of similar qualitative characteristics to the businesses I own. If you kind of group them together, um, one is there's a lot of owner operators. Um, another one is, you know, uh, a, a kind of group of investors who I emulate and their 13 F filings when they pil- file their public portfolios. Uh, you know, that's a rich source of screening for me. And I, I kind of publish my quarterly uh, compounder watch list, which is basically just, you know, taking 20 other investors that are really smart, that have done this for a long time, that are focused on the same qualities as me, and just kind of aggregating their portfolios. And the thought is there, you know, I know most of the names that would be on that list, but, you know, once or twice a year, you know, there's two or three new names that come on because there's a new IPO or, you know, one company merged with another or, something just changed in the business and there's like a company I don't recognize. So if, if some other investors that are smarter than me have started buying it, um, that's a, a kind of a clue for me to look. Who's on your 13 F list? Oh, I should have it pulled up, but just, I can just top, a handful. Don't have to, don't have to yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so Berkshire, um, Markel, Tom Gaynor, uh, Fundsmith, um, um, SPO advisory was on there, but I think they shut down. Um, uh, Alter Rock, um, uh, Sequoia, I was so Ruane Kniff, and uh, we'll, we'll put a link to all of these. We'll put, a, yeah, I'll put a link to your uh, to your list, uh, okay. in, in the show notes to this. So, uh, how when you're undertaking evaluation or what you've held something for a little while, how do you know? Like, what's the, what's the clue that something might've gone wrong? <laughs> That's not, I'm not making a joke here, but, uh, the stock <laughs> chart, literally the stock chart. I mean, I think that's another ch- uh, cheat sheet or screening tool. A lot of investors, uh, fundamental investors don't pay enough attention to, you know, one of the first things I, I look at when I'm starting to like research a company is I look at its five and 10 year stock chart. And the thought there is, you know, would I have been happy owning that stock five years ago? You know, cause I'm not the smartest analyst. I'm not going to be ever the best investor. You know, we're all just riding on other people's, you know, coattails, so to speak. Um, so I think you have to have a certain amount of, uh, humbleness and you, you shouldn't just look at a stock and say, this stock has been flat for five years. I'm going to buy it cause it's super cheap, you know, now. And as soon as I buy it, it's going to stop, start appreciating. Um, so I just assume that's never the case. I assume that trends are going to go on a lot longer than people ever thought they would. Um, and I just want to ride on existing trends. So the stock chart is the first one. Um, as far as how do you know you've made a mistake or that kind of thing, but really on the qualitative side, it's just when management says or does something. First of all, if they, if, if they have told me something that they're going to do, and then they do the exact opposite thing, like we're never going to make acquisitions in a different sector than our core business. And then I wake up one day and they made this huge splashy acquisition in some new business. That is like an automatic sell. 
that's like a bre breach of trust. You know, don't even right. look at the stock price. Don't even, I just like immediately sell. Um, so first of all, if they break what they say they're going to do, that's, that's the problem. But the second one is if they just kind of say or do things that are not in line with how you judge them. Um, and it's not necessarily, a, you know, they're doing something wrong. It's just like, you know, I thought the core thesis of the business was a, B and C and your reinvestment priorities were, you know, X and Y. And now you're, you're kind of doing that, but you're not. Uh, so it's just kind of watching for management change in tone. Um, just uh, to go back to the... So I, I, I saw there was a question on Twitter about technicals. And I, at the time, mm -hmm. I, I assumed that you weren't looking at technicals. But you, I, think that, I think that I understand where this question is going, was going. And so it was something to do with the way that you're, you're looking at you're looking at that stock price chart and just looking back over 10 years and seeing has this compounded and grown pretty smoothly over the last 10 years. Is that, is that what they meant? Is that, do you, is that, what you, is that how you interpret it? Um, I'm not sure of the tweet, but I think somebody was actually asking more about technical analysis and using it in process. And I'm definitely not an aficionado, uh, but I have a huge respect for technical analysis and that community. Um, and I would say on my, on my, I don't trade often, but when I say trading, I just mean like entering a position or, or closing a position. When I do make trades, I pay very close attention to technical analysis. Uh, just meaning, I mean, you can, with very unsophisticated, high level technical analysis, you know, you can analyze a chart over a two or three year time frame, and you can see where there's support on a chart. You can see where the trends are. And it, it's kind of easy to understand, you know, below or beneath certain levels, there's different amounts of supply or demand in the market for the price of the stock. Um, so I would just say I don't, I don't try to time to the nth degree and be cute about it. But if I look at a stock chart and I say, wow, this is really near this support level and, you know, they're having an earnings release coming up. And if the earnings release isn't exactly perfect, you know, it looks to me like I could easily see an air pocket and the stock's going to go down 15% to this next support level. I mean, I pay attention to those things. I see. What, what about... Uh, macro uh, more sort of macro views do you have any kind of macro view are you, are you thinking about it in that way you always bottom up uh, <laughs> no i'm glad you i'm glad you asked this near the end uh just because anybody that didn't want to hear me talk is hardly probably already stopped listening um i don't put a lot of weight on macro as far as my investment process and i think macro is similar to politics and that you get to this kind of emotional state where people have a lot of biases that are driven by things that aren't necessarily, that are hard to prove and that are kind of ever moving targets. So it's really hard to have a right or a wrong answer, I guess is what I'd say. Um, but I'll just say it. I mean, if people would know me from following me. I, I think I'm the most bullish person that I've ever met that lives. I mean, I, I'm wildly bullish. Yes. I I think stocks. I think the stock market is about to double in the next three to five years. <laughs> you know, I think that that's part. I think that that's been uh, part of Buffett's success is that he has been so optimistic the entire way through, and he's been right. Um. Yeah. There's. I mean, I appreciate you're not making me justify my bullish prediction, uh, so I won't necessarily try to. Uh, but um, yeah. I just see there's the concept. I'll maybe I'll say one comment that's somewhat intelligent. So hopefully it'll be useful to somebody. Um, there's the concept of um, the Carlota Perez framework. She's a, a professor 
who's done a lot of work on the concept of historical um, market cycles of kind of 30 to 40 year periods where there's like a huge growth wave that's driven by some new technology. So she goes back to like railroads uh, and then she goes to like um, electricity and then the creation of like telephone and radio. Uh, and then kind of in the 1950s, it would be in the U.S. at least, uh, the build out of kind of post-war um, housing infrastructure around the highway system and the highway bill in the late 1950s to build like a unified interstate system across the U.S. Um, and she calls all these things um, an installation period where we have these huge waves of installation of some new technology or infrastructure. And for a period of time while it's happening, there doesn't seem to be a lot of productivity. Well, there's no, on the measured statistics, there's no productivity growth. People can tell things are getting better and rapidly changing, but it doesn't necessarily always show up in like a GDP type metric. Um, and I, I believe, um, and I'm not, this isn't an original thought or anything, but I think we are just at the end of a deployment period for uh, the internet. And I think we are, um, sorry, at the installation period for the internet the last 20 years. I think we are just now starting to walk into a period post-installation of all this infrastructure, you know, connecting six, seven billion people in the world electronically. And now we're going to be on the start of this deployment period where we connect to the Internet, where we connect, you know, people and sensors and people play, you know, games through artificial and virtual reality. Uh, and I think uh, there's a long kind of lament by economics, economic. Uh, economists saying we've had no productivity growth, you know, over the past 15 years. And I, I say, if you look back to periods where, you know, there was an installation period for a railroad or electricity, it looked the exact same way. So that's, that's interesting. What's the, what's the name of the book? Um, I'll have to look it up and give All it to right. you. I'm not even we'll sure. If it's, no, it is a book. It's a series of white papers too, but the, the economist na name is uh, Carlotta Perez. Carlotta Perez. So I've got two more questions for you. Open-ended questions. The first one is, um, this is from Twitter. I understand that you're a real estate investor as well. Yeah. How, do, how does your real estate investment inform your stock market investing? Right. Um, and so the, I guess the feedback there is uh, I have relatives who are involved in residential and commercial real estate. It's kind of a legacy family business. Um, so that's not something I do on a day-to-day -day basis, but I am close to it just from the standpoint that my, you know, kind of Sunday or cocktail hour conversation revolves around a lot of real estate. Um, I think for me, it just, the way it informs my public investing is it just gives me an appreciation for hard asset businesses, tangible businesses that I think a lot of other investors, you know, that are focused on SaaS or software technology will miss. And a good example there would be, you know, uh, triple net lease businesses, net, net, net lease businesses, which by the way, Buffett uh, is one of the larger, is the largest investor in one of the public companies, uh, which is store capital. Those, those businesses are basically just the owners of single unit retail real estate like a McDonald's or a Starbucks or a Domino's pizza. And it's just an incredibly good model, um, the triple net lease business. So that's just one example. And they also own stuff like dollar stores. They own the physical real estate to a dollar store or a Walgreens or a, a grocery store. What, what is triple net? Uh, triple net just means um, basically it, all of the responsibility – and all of the expense for operating the real estate location falls on the operator of the real estate. So if you're, if you and I own a piece of triple net real estate and we lease it to Walgreens, the Walgreens employees, they do all the maintenance on the store. 
they're responsible and the, the company itself is responsible for maintaining the building. If that needs a new roof, they pay for a new roof. They pay for all, you know, the maintenance and the pest control and the like resurfacing the parking lot, that kind of stuff. We basically have no ongoing expense. You and I do as the owners of the building. It's just straight free cash flow to us. That sounds like a good business. So the, the final question, mm-hmm. uh, you can't talk about individual names, but I was just interested to get your views on uh, futures exchanges. Can you talk about that uh, that industry? Oh yeah, are we okay on time? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that is one. That's a business, or I should say, an industry that I did a deep dive on earlier this year, uh, and I was really focused on um, fixed income landscape. And the kind of the electronification of going from paper-based fixed income trading to electronic trading, uh, but that just kind of led me down the the rabbit hole to really dive into the into the securities exchange business overall. Um, and yeah, I think you and I were talking offline specifically inside of securities exchange industry. The futures exchanges are are a subset of the business model that I think are not widely understood or appreciated for how how high quality they are. Um, so I'll just try to tick through a couple of qualities and, and make this uh, useful and valuable for the listeners. I guess the first thing to think about is people say, you know, what's the mode of a securities exchange? You know, you can trade a stock on the New York Stock Exchange, you know, and you could sell it on the NASDAQ, for example. Um, so people are like, you know, there's kind of no moat. For, for futures exchanges, there's this concept called fungibility and non-fungibility. So if you open a futures contract on one exchange, you have to close it on that exchange. Um, there's no fungibility where you can like sell it on a different exchange. So basically that's kind of creates a lock-in, at least for that transaction, um, and it's kind of a localized moat. But it also has some predictability to it that it gives the business model in that you can see the open interest for an exchange and if, if investors open a position, that's half the revenue. And that, that just means they're gonna have to close the commission and sell it later which is going to come with an associated uh, commission. Um, so it's kind of a leading indicator uh, for revenue in the future. Um, all futures exchanges or all, all securities exchanges have a network effect where the largest liquidity pools are attracted to each other. You know, customers want to trade on the exchange that has the largest liquidity because it's going to have the best price and it's going to have like the, the smallest gap between a, a buy and a sell order. Um, so they kind of have natural network effects where the largest pools of liquidity get bigger and bigger. Um, I think a unique thing other than fungibility that people don't understand or think about when they think about futures exchanges are, you know, when you think about gambling, for example, I think that's what people say. They say it's just, you know, it's a big gambling market. Um, For more than half of um, energy related and agricultural related futures, the customer is a commercial customer. It's not just a day trader trying to like speculate. It's a commercial customer that for their business, they are having to basically open uh, a futures contract to hedge against something they're doing in their business. An example there would be like if you're Delta Airlines and you need to hedge your fuel cost. You know, that's something that's a tiny little part of your business, but it's necessary. It's like a small little form of insurance. Um, so they don't really think about it. It's something they have to do and they're going to do it every year. It's not like, you know, next year's operating budget is not going to have futures hedging cost in there. I mean, it's something that's recurring and that goes on over time. And it's the same thing for like a Nestle. You know, if they have, uh, if they're creating coffee or they're, they're purchasing coffee or they're purchasing sugar for inputs for their, 
for the uh, food they sell. They hedge it. So you have this kind of recurring necessary service by these commercial cu customers that aren't speculators to use futures exchanges. Um, because of those things, the kind of necessity of the product, of the futures product to these commercial customers, and because it's such a tiny part of their business and what they're doing, um, unlike the other exchanges, like equity exchanges, the futures exchanges have actually demonstrated small pricing power, um, a, a small amount of pricing power, which they raise prices kind of 1% to 2% annually. Um, and the underlying volumes grow basically in line with GDP. Uh, if you just think about like the Nestle example, you know, if people are going to eat more food, they're going to hedge more stuff. If people fly on Delta Airlines more this year or last next year than they did this year, they're going to have more fuel to hedge. Um, so volumes kind of tend to grow in line with GDP activity overall. Add that volume with the pricing growth, and these businesses grow organically 4 to 5% a year. Um, and another nice feature about them is that they're counter-cyclical, meaning when the stock market goes down, when there's a panic period, when economic activity weakens, uh, volumes in the futures market or any exchange industry market spike. So revenues spike higher when economic activity in the, in the overall economy does worse uh, for these businesses. So they're counter-cyclical, and, and that's a nice hedge for an investor's portfolio. Um, and I guess the last things I would say are um, they have basically evolved into an oligopoly. Um, they went through a demutualization wave starting 20 years ago, um, and they, they used to be run. They were, they were not-for-profit businesses. They were run like country clubs, basically. They didn't think about pricing power. They didn't think about having, you know, efficiencies of scale and like automated databases and electronic back offices and stuff. And now they've been, uh, they've gone through a wave of like three generations of management teams now. And the management teams they have now are, you know, very professional, thoughtful, came from other type businesses, uh, you know, in the industry like S&P or Visa or like type businesses. And they run, they're run very professionally and they're non-competitive. As far as you know, they're they're, oligos they're oligopolies and they don't compete against each other. It's interesting. It was uh, that that uh, counter cyclicality was the uh, that was that, the natural question I think that came out. That's that's kind of really interesting that the, most of the trading or well, there's a spike in trading, of course, right. when when the when the economy goes through a tougher period when the stock market crashes. Then that doesn't mean that you know the stock prices, like of the futures right. exchanges, will go up to reflect that revenue growth. But it is nice. I mean, they do have, you know, as far as paying out consistent dividends or being able to, you know, acquire acquisitions, acquire some of their competitors, you know, if the stock market goes down, you know, they're kind of an advantage position. And that's, uh, that's just about coming up on time for us. Uh, want to thank you very much, Bluegrass, for sharing your wisdom and uh, your process with us. It was fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I hope, I hope some of that translated into the into the conversation okay and people found it useful it was great uh i'll make sure that in the show notes there's a link to your twitter handle and we also need to put a link to uh i think the white papers by uh carlotta perez uh, okay and uh your 13f uh your annual yep. 13f list sounds great once again thank you very much my pleasure